welcome to Small Steps Living, the The podcast. podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cordaff, bringing you inspiring stories to help you transform your life one small step at a time. Here at Small Steps Living, we're keeping it real. Kick back and And enjoy enjoy the show. show. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, I am talking to someone who I am lucky enough to call a friend. We met online. Sounds rude, but you know, how else do people meet these days? <laughs> and, um, and I've been able to watch her journey. Um, when we first met, she owned a business called Sustain a Baby, which she has since sold and has created a totally new business. And it fascinates me. I support her work 100% and I think she's got lots and lots of nuggets of wisdom to share with you today. So I'm very pleased to welcome Laura Trotter. Welcome, Laura. Welcome, Lisa. I'm just as proud to be your friend too. In fact, yeah, sometimes it's a bit of that, you know, popular girl at school, I can't believe I'm friends with Lisa. And I've got some of my friends that are going, you're friends with Lisa. I'm so jealous. Get out but of town. I can't they even. do. My, you know, my school mum friends, it's like I'm just a school mum to them and they think, oh, you're friends with Lisa and you're friends with, you know. So, That's yeah. like me you know when I meet like. people at school and they're like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I just, I have, a, a, I have an online business. And they're like, oh, cool. Don't get it. <laughs> but then I think if they come across me, they're like, oh, my God. Okay, hello. You can't come to my kids' birthday parties anymore. <laughs> yeah, because you see what I feed them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let's today, you know, the reason why, you know I'm all about small steps and I have interviewed you before um, for my members because what I love in this world where we're constantly being bombarded with information is people who take a really rational, a really real life approach to sometimes big issues, you know, like food, like the environment. And some people might not be aware, but you know, before I had kids, I worked in the sustainability space, especially around the area of behavior change, where you're trying to connect people with a very big issue and one in which they can often feel very powerless and disconnected from. So when you first started off with, I mean, let's go right back. And let's just go right back. I don't want to go just back as far as sustainability. I want to know what you studied at uni and then where you worked and how this has helped inform the decisions that you've made in your life. Yeah, sure. So right back. So I grew up in country Victoria, so eastern Victoria, Gippsland, beautiful part of the world. And I was a child of the 80s, you know, teenager of the 90s. So I spent a lot of my childhood outdoors and we lived just you know, in the middle of town, like a country town, but there was lakes, there were wetlands. We had holidays up in the Victorian high country and we, or we had a boat, we were out on the Gippsland Lake. So I was very much an outdoors kid and I, I had some really strong connections to nature from a really early age. I just loved being outdoors and I felt my happiest when I was outdoors and, you know, just mucking about. And um, I guess, yeah, I was always that outdoorsy kind of kid, but I was... I was really good at maths and sciences, like really good. And uh, maths was my favourite and biology, chemistry. So they were the subjects I was doing at school because I was excelling in them. But I was also doing, I guess, geography because, you know, because of my environmental interest. But I I couldn't really decide what to do. And I actually, I was a trumpet player too, so I was really heavily into music and I wanted to be a musician. And actually for my, my um, work experience in year 11, I actually went to the Australian Defence Force School of Music because I was going to be a trumpet really? player. Yeah. Get out of town. So I went down to Melbourne for two weeks and was in the Watsonia barracks um, doing music every day. And I came back from that two weeks. I loved it. I loved every single minute. But I was kind of like, I'm 16 years old and that wasn't challenging. It was a hell of a lot of fun. And I'm like, it wasn't challenging. Um, am I going to be bored by the time I'm 25 or 30? And at the same time, I'm thinking, what sort of job will I get? Will I just play in bands all the time? And, you know, my dad was very much, you know, it's kind of like that parent of an artist. You won't make money. You'll be mm. barefoot, pregnant, mm. all that all that doom and gloom mm. sort of stuff. And then I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. And then my boyfriend at the time at school, his um, brother 
had just was in university and he was at RMIT uni in Melbourne and one of his best friends had just start was in a course called environmental engineering and it had just been released so this is like uh early 90s so yeah, right. it was a brand new course that these environmental courses hadn't existed so he goes and he brought the pamphlet home for me and he goes Laura you should read this I think it is totally you and then I read it and I thought, oh, my God, it, it is so me. I love this course. I want to do it. This was like towards the end of year 11. You're trying to think about year 12 and I'm freaking out because I don't want to be a trumpet player anymore. <laughs> and then this pamphlet lands in my hand because the internet, there was no internet. Oh, like, yeah. No way. There wasn't back then. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, I'll check it out. And then I went down on the open days when I was in year 12, checked it out. I did another round of work experience. Just my uncle was an engineer, but he was an electrical engineer and he was in a consulting firm in Melbourne. So I just went and hang out with the environmental engineers there for a week to decide if I liked it. And I thought, yeah. So I was off on the, the most contaminated sites in Melbourne soil testing. Like, um, you remember, is it Crude Island, the one yes. that blew up yes. in the 80s and had that toxic cloud over Melbourne? So I was sampling all the soil and groundwater there. I thought, this is amazing. Like, I want to do this. So, um, yeah, I went to uni. Left home at 17, as you do when you're in the country, and, yeah, went down to Melbourne and partied a lot and had part-time jobs to pay my way through uni. And But I, I at the same time, I did really well because I was in a course that I loved. Mm. Um, all the concepts just made sense to me and even the maths, like. You're a I mean, in, I just... Well, maths is like 500 first-year engineering students in maths and uh, the, I mean, I did really good at maths. The lecturer took me aside and said, we'd like to get you into mathematics and all this sort of stuff because of my exam result. Did you get, and like, top of the class, Laura? You can say I it. Got, oh, in maths, yeah, I did in that exam. And then I said, oh, you know, I'm just like, that's okay, I'm cool with this. And um, But I just like maths. It, that was, it just made sense. I'm not saying it to brag. It just when things make sense, they make sense. Laura, and, I'm um, sick of the tall poppy here. If you're good at something, no, no. claim it. Oh, yeah. You know, so I'm yeah, a rock I will. Star. Yeah, so I did. So I loved my course, and I did like I was a party girl and a country girl, but my my marks were still good. I think it's just one of those things. You you're in where you deserve to be. You're enjoying it. It just soaks in, and you do well. And um, in my second year, um, a mining company offered. They decided they needed to get some more women into engineering roles because there was like none or something <laughs> like that. So they were like pinpointing the students as they were coming through. So they offered three scholarships for women and I applied and I got one as a student and that involved kind of like, um, well, they paid for uni fees, which is amazing, and then some summer vacation work and then if you did really well, you could get a graduate job. So yeah, I was 19 years old and I um, was bundled off down to Tasmania on the west coast of Tassie, so mountainous. And I was working in this 100-year-old zinc-lead gold mine underground in a small town of, like, not even a 1,000 people, Rosebury on the west coast of Tassie. And, yeah, 19 years old. And I loved it. Like, I was hiking in the Tasmanian wilderness, like, every weekend. So my my outdoors cup was full. But the work, it's like, this is a really old mine. They had, um like their waste rock it had pyrite in it like iron sulfide and when that reacts with water it can produce sulfuric acid which if it leaves a mine site it can get into creeks and it gets the lowers the obviously the acidity gets things more get acidic and and metals can get dissolved and cause a lot of toxicity issues in creeks so I was seeing this issue it's called acid acid rock drainage or acid mine drainage for the first time at these historic mine sites. And obviously that wasn't far from Queenstown in Tassie where that King River was pretty much dead mm. because that mine used to pour all the tailings down the river. So on the west coast of Tassie, wilderness areas all around, but then you've got pockets of the environment that are just dead because of historical issues. And I just thought, gosh, I'm, you know, it was just like, it's like you're just freaking out on chemistry, really. It's yep. like, I love this stuff, but it's yeah. in the environment, something you want to, that you're so passionate about. So I'm sounding like a real nerd here. But yeah, so I ended up working in the minerals industry for 11 years or so. I loved it so much, especially that chemistry and that acid rock drainage issue. I did a master's in chemistry, but that specific issue. At a mine, I worked in northwest Queensland for four years. Again, living in a remote mining camp near the Queensland Northern Territory border. I think I was 23 when I went there. And with a lot um, of dudes, I'd be imagining. 
like a lot of blokes. Oh, yeah, some really feral dudes. Yeah, that slip notes under your door in the middle of the night and you'd be, you might go to the mess after work, like the wet mess, and all of a sudden there's a beer or two in front of you and you think, where's this come from? And then you look up and this really feral guy from the oh, far corner oh, that's covered in hair is just smiling <laughs> at you and you're just like, so I just kind of didn't really go there much. I'd just go to work. You'd work 12 hours, 13 hours, and then I'd go to the gym or I'd swim in the pool. And then maybe there'd be that feral guy standing at the end of the pool waiting for you to get out. So I think I was there two months and I had to put in a sexual harassment case. At, oh, wow. As a 23-year-old. And I'm just like, I just, wa- I just want to work. This was like you were breaking ground back then, being a female yeah. in these remote locations, being a female in mine sites and mm-hmm. engineering kind of in general. Yeah, it has changed a lot, but there's still a lot of a long way to go. Yeah. So, I mean, I just love I love hearing about what other people do, especially when it's something that I would never ever choose to do. I was never drawn. I could do maths. Um, but I remember in year 12 I decided not to do maths and my parents were having conniptions like you can't <laughs> finish school without maths. Uh, yeah. pretty sure I'll be okay. Uh, so I love hearing stories about people who do things that are really quite extraordinary. I mean, that's an amazing story. And um, to be so good at something that you do is must be an amazing feeling because you have been recognised in your industry and, you know, you downplay, I think, um, your achievements. But talk to me then what happened because um, then you must have met your husband somewhere along the line and he was probably one of the good blokes. But... Then you had kids and so no more mine sites? Well, not really, not for me, although my husband still works at one, but we've got plans for him to move on from that. But, um, yeah, so I met my husband at that mine in northwest Queensland and, like, I met him in the first few months when I was there. But then he uh, – and we actually dated, um, yeah, at that time because because we were on Where the same Where do you go roster. on a date? Well, on your seventh, so I walked, I worked 14 days straight and then I'd have seven days off in Townsville, so away from the mine. So you'd fly back to Townsville and he was on the same roster, so it was convenient. Nice. No? <laughs> Try not to laugh. Um, no, I didn't just get together with him because it was convenient. We, um, he's a lovely guy. He really is. <laughs> Sorry. I had nothing better to do in Townsville. Yep. So, yeah, then we got married. <laughs> Yeah, but we weren't together all that time because he, being in the industry, he was on secondment there, which just means he was just placed there by the company because it was a brand new mine. It was He was there in the construction and the commissioning phase. And I came there at the end of construction for the big, for, for it to move into production as one of the environmentalists there, environmental engineers. Um, so I was there at the opening and Paul Kelly sang at the opening and all that sort of stuff. So that was like um, in, yeah, February 2000 it opened. And, yeah, so Paul, um, yeah, we were together then. But, but come that February, he was um, then moved down to Broken Hill and so we kind of broke up. And then he was in Broken Hill for maybe 12 months and then he was put down, get get this, in Tasmania at that mine that I no. started at when I was no. 19, that same mine. And he worked there for like three years or something as a metallurgist. But we stayed friends. And, I mean, in that time I was I'd dated some other people. I had to be so fussy who I dated with, though, because as you can imagine – girl on a mine site and I was very career focused I was even studying my master's by then too and it's like and I had a very clear direction where I wanted to go in the industry and it's like one bad relationship or something can just screw it up for you because of gossip and everything you've just it's kind of like you had to be squeaky clean because people would make stuff up anyway but if you can put your hand on your heart and say that's not true I did not have that affair it's like Jeez. You know, that was the kind of thing. It's oh, like right. everywhere you look, you just looked at. And it's the thing, so you downplay your looks and I just would never wear anything revealing. I'd just wear my work clothes and then I'd just wear like a baggy, like a surf T-shirt and shorts. You just learned not to draw because attention to yourself. Laura, you had so much attention anyway. You do have great yeah. boobs. Like you've just got uh, really good boobs and that must have been awful. <laughs> that's why I've got a hunch back because you hide them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's awful. Yeah. Oh, anyway, boobs. Um, so okay, so then so then you're um you you hooked up with your with your man yeah. again. You yeah. made some babes. 
What's yep. happening? Well, we we had a big move before then because oh. I was still in. I left that mine in Townsville. I was at consulting with a consulting company in Townsville, and meanwhile we got back together. But he was still in frigging Tasmania, and I was in North Queensland when we decided to yeah, let's give this a go. And um, yeah, we went on a holiday to New Zealand. Decided we want to really give it a go, but it's kind of like there's still like three thousand, four thousand kilometers between us or whatever it was. Yikes! And then. Yeah, he then, his old boss from Broken Hill was in South Australia working at Olympic Dam and offered Paul a job. And I said, you know, I've just done four years in the desert. Don't really want to go back to the desert. Um, I'm kind of happy to work here now and then maybe move back to Victoria where my family are or something like that. But then I thought, you know, and, but he was struggling to get a job in Townsville. And then I said, okay, look, I'll consider, I'll consider Broxby if this job came up and it was this. I said the name of the title of the job and the next week that job was advertised. Oh, man. Manifesting. So I, so I applied for it and, and I got it. it. Of course you yeah. did. And then I thought, okay, um, this is cool. Um, we can do this. And so we thought, we'll just come here for two years and um, that would be great. And that was 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the global financial crisis happened. Mm. Um, It was very hard to move on and get other jobs. And then, of course, we married and then we, yeah, getting back to that question, we had kids. Mm. Yeah, two kids. and Like how someone who is very driven, who has set her sights on the best jobs, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the highs of the highs, you know, not only were you studying, you were even getting people to pay you to study because you're so clever. So then, so then what happens to the woman that is Laura who has to find herself oh, in a way once kids She come really on? struggles. Yeah, right. Yeah, because when I was pregnant, I was, um, I was about to step into manager at the largest industrial site in Australia. So I was, um, I'd been taken out of the environmental role and fast-tracked through a two-year program on business, running businesses and business improvement and business strategy and, um, really loving that so it's called lean six sigma really high end high training very intense work working hours and put on multi-million dollar projects with the intent that you know we're we're fast tracking you to step into a manager role there was no female managers who were mothers on the site and I'd only ever known of one in the entire 11 years in industry that I'd worked with Um, and she was my boss and a mentor of mine but yeah, she had a stay-at-home husband when she stepped up to the high levels. Her husband quit his job and he was a um, a meddler, just a very, very good one. But, you know, they had two kids and, you know, you've got – someone has to give. And I guess I I never – I was about to step into the manager role, which, again, just kind of means sort of selling your soulish. <laughs> um, yeah, you can't really have much balance when you do those sort of roles. And um, – but then were we having a much long-for baby? So – but the – when I did announce my pregnancy to work, it kind of wasn't um, received that well um, and I was I could all of a sudden been treated a bit differently and taken off training or my boss at the time it took me off training. Oh, so you're going to be leaving the company and all this sort of stuff. I'm just like, I'm not leaving the company. I'm just having a baby and I'll take some time off and I'll come back. And But it just didn't work. So I ended up being miserable um, because I was struggling with the uh, to change the change, and I was getting treated at work differently when I'd kind of been a bit of the golden girl to being, mm. you know, pushed aside. Um, so then I went on maternity leave, pretty angry and a bit pissed off, mm. but also just wanting, you know, looking forward to the break. And then when I actually walked out those gates, it got a bit worse throughout. And so I thought, you know what, I don't ever want to go back and I'm going to make sure I don't go back. And actually before I walked out those gates at 28 weeks pregnant, um, I had the idea. I was looking for eco-friendly baby products, you know, that I wanted to buy and I just couldn't find them. I was going right to suppliers and, you know, this was 2009. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really much online because I'm living in remote Australia trying to buy these things. So I thought I'm going to. I'm going to set this. And then the idea named Sustainer Baby just popped in head, had a little look, URLs available, business names available, everything's available. Why hasn't someone thought of this? It's just so simple. 
I'll just grab all them and I'm just going to do it. Didn't think too much about it. I think if you overthink things, you stop oh. doing things. Yeah. And um, I did do up a business plan because I'd just been two years in a business improvement role, so you don't start something without a business plan. <laughs> and I had my very risk-averse husband to check over it and I said, pull this apart. What am I, you know, am I crazy? Is there something I'm not seeing? And he gave it back to me. He goes, no, Laura, you should do this. And I'm just like, what? It's like, I'm t- you know, I was 28, 30 weeks pregnant then. And he's like, no, um, you should do it. Um, the alternative is, I guess I said, why are you so supportive? You're so risk averse. And he goes, because the alternative, you've been so miserable this last six months. I never want you to be that miserable again. Plus. Yeah. So I had his um, big tick. So yeah, I just went off and did that on maternity leave and never went back. And I'm glad I never went back. And it was such a successful online business. It was. It was. It went, okay, yeah, in ter- um, successive normally measured in money terms. So it was turning over six figures within 12 months, which was great. And I made some mistakes. I made some very costly mistakes as well, you know what I mean? But oh, would, don't would kind of absorb them. It's part like of the ones, yeah. Part of the whole deal though, you know, going out on your own. Like I think that that's amazing and like, you holding other people's stock like you you like there's big time investment that needs to go into setting something like that up so there was no online coaches at that time because everyone was just figuring it out for themselves Mm. so I kind of just soldiered through like the first four or five years in the business just on your own and I kind of kind of in hindsight probably wore that as a bit of a badge of honor but there wasn't really any people out there to hold your hand I there was a couple of um, mentors in the offline world that I bounced ideas off but they didn't really get what I was doing yeah but um but they could still help you confidence wise to steam ahead but I love the business I truly did I loved it right up until my um second son was born yeah (laughs) and then what happened oh he didn't sleep for like Mm. 18 months yeah and he screamed as well Mm. So um, when he was born, I had like three months of blog posts already written, like, oh, you know, I can take it easy for three months and then everything will be under control and I can kind of just keep going. And I had a, an employee that was packing all the orders for me so I could take that time out and I thought I'd organised it really well, but Christopher had other ideas. And they have a way of doing that, don't they? You know, let's just, you think that this is what your life is about? Mm, actually going to go right ahead and make it about me yeah and I think also I don't know um before I had my son who was my eldest I had this period of working at home at like about two years and it was awful like in the beginning I don't know whether I got depressed or not but I was pretty pretty low because I was used to working in a media environment, daily deadlines, hustle and bustle, and then it was just me. And we were in Sydney, so I had no friends. And uh, my sister was there, thank God. But um, it was was really, really tough. But I remember thinking at that time, or when when I was going into then having a baby, that I was so glad I'd had that chance to just be quiet in a house, be by myself. And I had also really been struggling with some freelance work that I'd been doing and not getting much traction on things. And I kept thinking, what if I'd just gone from like the winning awards for this TV show in 2007 to having the baby? And then that that would have just been shocking. And I would have felt like I wouldn't have known whether it was just because it's such a huge lifestyle shift to go from having a job where you've got an important role to then just, you know, being at home a lot and, you know, having a baby or is it just the lifestyle change? Like what's the thing? And I think it's the identity change. Yes, so much. So did you struggle? Like has that been part of your, you know, transition into motherhood yeah because from what I'm yes. hearing like well I still remember doing um a pre- is it prenatal or postnatal class the one you do before the baby's born and I was in Melbourne at the hospital there and they were running it and I still remember the presenter and she was she drew a graph and she said this is women in traditional um in communities and countries how their status improves as they get older so they're and she drew this graph and, and it was like, okay, so we're a girl. And then she gets married and she notched up on the graph. 
and then she has a baby and she went up on the graph like a status and how the community held her. And then she has another baby and it goes, oh, and then she has a boy and it goes up, you know what I mean? And then I'm looking at it and then she goes, and this is in Western society and she do, did the girl and this is a girl and then she gets an education, then she gets a job and then she, oh, hang on, the other one, she got married, you know, married, I said that went up. And then yeah, so she's back in the Western one, she gets a job, she education, gets a job, she gets married and goes up. Um, then she gets a promotion, it goes up, and then she has a baby and it dropped down. Wow. And then she has another baby and it drops down again. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is why postnatal depression is like one in six, one in, in these Western women. And um, I saw that graph and her talking through that. And there's no sweat. This is a this is a group of, what, 12 women about to have babies, like we were 35 weeks pregnant or something then, 36. And I just dissolved into tears and I just thought, this is, I'm feeling this so much because that was my whole experience during my pregnancy, yeah, how I just work. felt like yeah. everyone who used to look at me with so much respect weren't looking at me anymore. Oh, Laura. And, I, 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 you know, I look back and I'm saying I'm so much wiser now. I don't, don't need all that anyway, you know what I mean? It comes from within, not from the external environment. But back then it was a massive deal. And I think building Sustainer Baby, you talk about that massive shock. If I'd gone from working such intensely at such a high level in the minerals industry to to just being with my baby, I think I would have been one of those terrible statistics. I think starting that business kept my mind mm. sane and, mm. and I had something else to focus my energies on and I was creating um, but I was still absorbed in the world of eco-parenting and being able to buy all these awesome organic <laughs> products for my own baby you know, <laughs> at wholesale rates, um, you know, that's. At what it's all about at the end of the day, really. Really? But you know what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, that graph in that postnatal, prenatal, whatever it is, that class. But do you and, know um, what I reckon about that graph? Like the reason why it's frustrating is um, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I can't remember who it was. And for all that I achieved or didn't really achieve in my career or anything that really happened to pre-children, mm. I feel like, you know, just like you, I've had three, well, you, you've had two, I've had three, and I've done it away from family. So um, no one around to kind of pop in if yep. people get gastro or something, touch wood. Um, you know, my eldest was still three when the third was born. And I feel like I can do freaking anything. I yeah. feel like my strength has come because I've seen what I'm capable of when I didn't think I had anything left. Uh, it, when I you still got to get out of bed. You still get out of bed. You get up and you do it. You like you can't hide. You, you can't. You just got to show up. You just got to show up. And then I guess I, I, I honestly feel like that experience, this experience, the past six years of motherhood, have given me this feeling like I can do anything. Anything that yep. I set my mind to, I can do. And that's totally opposite to that graph. You know, w what is going on that our society is not recognising the strength of the mother, the ability of the mother? And I get people asking me, like you must too, how do you do it with kids? I don't. I get help. I get help. I get outsource or, you know what I mean? Or I don't do it all. I mean, I just showed you, you can see my messy lounge room right behind. <laughs> you know, it's like I let things go. Yeah. Because, and because yeah, we're I just, not... Yeah. We're not doing it. We have to create our own villages because we're not living in a village anymore. And, yeah, I just I, I find that really a really interesting thing to think about too because it's opposite to the way I, I think about myself. But I must say, you know, um, I did an event down in Melbourne um, with Amy Taylor-Kabaz, beautiful Amy, and the women in there were really broken and really sad and really one woman came up at the end and she was just so gorgeous. She'd sat in the front row. She'd had a very high-powered job and she just said, I just don't know how my life has become about nappies and getting kids fed. And, you know, so there is also this part of us that's like, really? This is my life? What? <laughs> so... Yeah, it's a very, very big transition. Okay, so we've totally gotten off, off tangent here. Oh, we have totally. Totally. Sorry, Let's talk about nice. the freaking environment here. 
Um, <laughs> now it's just like, let's just oh, chat. Yeah. Um, so what, what I really wanted to talk I to you about. I we were recording a podcast. I thought we were just chatting. You know? <laughs> I'm it does feel like that. Welcome everyone into Laura and Lisa's private chat today. <laughs> just catching up. So you, you sold Sustain a Baby and then you've created a totally new platform. So your direction yeah. keeps changing, which I think is also the sign of a, of a great and responsive a leader in their field and um, also someone whose drive and passion just can't be stamped out. Like you'll find a new way to get your word out. You'll find a new way to communicate, to to teach. And I see you as that. I see you as an educator. I see you as someone who I can turn to who knows all the shit that I don't have time to look up. But if I just want someone who knows what they're talking about, I go to you. All your resources are so solidly researched and you are also a mum who is living in a remote part of Australia and you get that it's not about perfection it's just about trying your best so talk to us a little bit about what you've created and why yeah well why it gets back to again my time in sustain running sustain a baby and all my customers constantly asking me, how can I do this, Laura? How can I get rid of toxins in my home? Or how do you do this? And and I was also talk about frustrated. It's like um, I was a little bit frustrated running a retail business because I wanted to educate and inspire. And I don't know, again, what does an en- why does an engineer create a retail business? I never had any experience <laughs> in retail ever. Even through uni and school, my part-time jobs are all hospitality. So... You know, retail wasn't my passion, but the why behind Sustain a Baby always was, and that was yeah to make green mainstream, to get more people adopting sustainable ways of living. And so I had a period of crossover for about two years with Sustain a Baby where I'd started to launch some online eco-living programs. And, yeah, so I've actually, well, we've got three all up. So my home detox boot camp was the first one that helps people remove toxins in the home. And it's just, yeah, just steadily grown over the years and about a few hundred people go through it with fantastic results. And I did one on home energy use, so greenhouse home energy blitz, but my main one these days, and we'll talk about it towards the end, is self-sufficiency in the suburbs. So I guess that's how I got into it because people were asking me how. And then when I started doing it, I just realised this is what I want to do. I, I Like you said, I, I love educating. I love inspiring. Um, I started my life just got so crazy running retail business and trying to do this at the same time. So I guess I made the decision or maybe the decision was made for me um, with personal circumstances around some, you know, something that happened with some money in our family that we, that we were running pretty tight there. So I, I yeah, sold sustain a baby, but that was also, I could now just focus in my education and um, just changing people's lives like, like that. Um so Have I answered the question or have I gone off on tangent yeah, again? Yeah, no, it, it, it is. So because so self-sufficiency in the suburbs is now something that you've rolled out. I saw lots of Facebook ads for it. And the concept appeals to me because where I feel like we can sometimes go wrong in life with lots of things is when we're waiting for the circumstances to be right in order to start making changes. So like, you know, I'll start taking care of myself when the kids are in school or when we've got extra money, uh, we'll go on a holiday. Or instead of just finding ways right here, right now to add the goodness back into your life. And I know personally, Nick and I are always like, when we get our house in the country and have chickens uh, or when we buy a house, because we we rent, when we buy a house, we can do this, this and have veggie gardens and blah, 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 blah. Even although in, you know, the inner west of Sydney, in our concrete little tiny back gardens, Nick built veggie gardens himself, just... It was, and you so can, and you so can. But so I feel like self-sufficiency in the suburbs is saying you can do this right here where you are. You don't have to change your life in order to live a more sustainable life. So how do you actually teach people how to do that? And what are what are people coming to you for? Like, what do you feel is the current mood around sustainability? I think the current mood around sustainability is people. Like I said, it's not like it was twenty whatever years ago when I first started studying environmental engineering by then 
you know, the average person didn't really have a really good understanding on what was happening. Uh, I think people are much more aware these days. Um, and that's obviously, I think, on the online world and on, on media and but um, just the news stories, there's more and more environmental ones because things are really reaching a big crisis point and the average person is becoming a lot more aware. And when I, I don't mean average, is average. Just the everyday person is becoming more aware um, and worried. Um, so people are more aware that they need to make some change. But the same thing, that there's always that belief out there that by changing, you know, I, I you know, I'm not going to have as good a standard living or it's going to take more time or I, I'm going to, cost more money or do I need to move to the country and have my chickens there it's like my again my message is no you don't have to do that let's do this without turning your back on the modern world because you like your Netflix or you like your smartphones or you know you like your daily latte whatever it might be we can we can work with all that and we can just make a, a series of small changes in an ongoing way it's just all about continual improvement it's I'm still making changes and mm. I've been doing this for freaking decades yeah yeah. And I will always be making changes because there's always another step you can go. But I just try and guide people from the beginners all the way through to the advanced to just keep making these changes, keep supporting each other. It's the benefits are totally worth it. And um, yeah. And this is the thing that used to come up. I used to work with a lot of NGOs and they would say that they'd come across people who would be like, well, why should I? make a uh -huh. difference when China is putting up a new coal-fired power station every month or so and you, it's that inability to see that. Um, so there's two things in that. One is like what's the point mm -hmm. and the other thing that I feel like, I feel like there's a mood shifting in terms of this stuff makes my life better. Like, so yep. it's not about anymore convincing people that doing certain things is going to, you've got to do it for the environment. It's like mm -hmm. do it you for you. do it for you. Yes. Yep. Because your health improves because your kids aren't, you know, off totally. the chart. You've hit, it, you've hit it on the two biggest things. I think you're right. I understand some of those feelings because people can get, overwhelmed like you said the china doing that or that our oceans are full of plastic species are becoming extinct every single day like how can i stop that and also it can be annoying when like you might be making changes but yeah your next door neighbor's bins might be on overflowing or their house might look like a christmas tree all year round because they're leaving all their lights on or whatever like that but you know big big change at the top needs to happen like with policies and our global policies there without a doubt big changes have to happen but a massive, massive groundswell of many, many people making a series of many, many small changes also needs to happen, and it is happening. And like you said, um, people are no longer thinking, I've got to do this for the environment. You've got to think about the benefits of living sustainably. You know, you're healthier, you're happier, you're simpler, you save cash, and you've got a much deeper connection to our earth, but not just that, to the communities in which you live as well and placing a value on that because they're so worth it. So, yeah, you're not just making a change for earth, you're making a change for you and your life. So I think people's mindset starting to shift on that, which is helping with getting this massive groundswell of of people making smaller changes, which yeah. will have a massive impact positively I think as on people, Earth. And don't you feel like we're just, I, I see a lot of the environmental problems are the same as the problems in our head. You know, we're so cluttered. There's too much junk. Like, and it's all, it's it, there's all these um, similarities between so many different aspects of our lives and I just think you can't when I was doing the work with the NGOs and when I was you know we were, we were trying to actually reach people around products um and more sustainable products that they can buy anyway there's a whole different story but when I started to I, I couldn't believe that I hadn't made the connection between the food I was eating and the choices that I was making with that, that took a long time for the penny to drop. I knew about food miles, I knew about, but it, it all sort of seemed very much like other very greeny people were doing that or the restaurants that were taking that into consideration. You know, this is back in 2007, 2008. They were all kind of on the fringe and it didn't seem to be something that seeped into my brain until I really started to kind of own that one of the easiest 
things for me to do was to change the way that I ate and, you know, just stop buying a lot of this processed and packaged food was like, that is like the simplest win for me. And it's probably the win that has the the biggest impact on the environment, on your health and on the environment. So when I started to go down this path, I was like, well, I'm just going to start talking about food more. It's good. Food. It's because we're doing it every day. Some people go to the shops every single day. (laughs) And, you know, it's just something that we could really raise our awareness around because it's also, it's for our health. Like it's not for this big other thing that's going on out there that we don't have any control over really but I'd love to know from you before we finish up what are some of the the easy and quick wins that you help people with when they're just starting off like the small steps what are some of the ones that is just so easy to tick off oh there's so many do you want to have a bit of fun about this yeah go because we can I can you can give us give me an area like you can say in the garden or in the kitchen or whatever and we, we could do some small steps there Okay. Well, um, okay. Well, what about, uh, I saw, okay. Household cleaning, like cleaning clothes, cleaning clothes. It's like my nightmare. Cleaning clothes. Yeah. Clothes are a nightmare. Um, well, small steps you can do there for the environment. Very first one. If you're not using a washing line, use a frigging washing line (laughs) or, you know, um, you know, or, you know, because sunlight for one will help fade the stains on your clothes and also just that air dry. Your clothes will last longer because they're not just getting pummeled in a dryer all the time. So, and if you live in a cold or wetter climate, get a clothes source and just pop it in front of your heater or they can dry overnight or something. So if you are in the habit of using a dryer regularly, um, that's something very quickly you can do. So that's obviously going to save you energy and also with the sunlight fading the stains. When you come to washing your own detergent, it's actually really, really simple to make your own laundry detergent. And there's, there's, I mean, one of my recipes in the Home Detox Boot Camp, and it's also in self-sufficiency, is just a very basic one where you can grind up like a pure soap, like a custard soap, and blend it with washing soda, so sodium carbonate. So the carbonate helps to, well, it makes the water softer, so the soap doesn't form a soap scum like it. It doesn't have that chemical reaction in the water so you don't get that insoluble soap scum um yeah and that cleans clothes really well you only need a tablespoon and it's around about a 50 50 blend but depending on your water quality if you've got harder water you'll need more washing soda um yeah that's very simple steps there and that detergent we i might make that grind one or two bars of soap and it takes five minutes in a thermomix and i've got three months worth of washing detergent what so very easy, small step, very effective. I love that small step. I'm going to do that small step. Yeah. Because um, I buy the eco stuff that is super yeah. expensive. It um, is. It could be a lot easier for me. Okay. And if you so, have the ingredients on that, you'll see sodium carbonate, maybe sodium bicarbonate. It's just super just easy. And you just get stuff. that stuff from where? Well, sodium carbonate, you can actually, it's just washing soda in the laundry aisle at your supermarket, but it's like $1.75 for like a kilo bag. And Castile soap from the health food store uh, shop? Yeah, health food stores, even David Jones, like like a brand like Dr. Bronner's, which is available year-round, uh, not year-round, world, everywhere pretty much, or yeah. online. Um, or if there's someone, you can obviously another small step a bit further away along the line uh, of your journey, you can make your own soaps. But, yeah, there might be a local soap producer, olive oil soaps or something like that. Okay, so it can be any sort of, okay, that's good to know. Natural soap. Natural soaps, okay. Um, Okay, so what about then in the car? I mean, it's an obvious one, but, what you know, apart from getting a a Prius, you know, Mm -hmm. what what do you do? Yeah, well, we live in a regional area, so we do, well, one, we still need a car because there is no public transport where we live Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, the cars are a funny one. So diesels, for example, and I must admit cars aren't the the topic that I know the most about, but diesels are more, what's the word, efficient in terms of their fuel and how far the fuel goes. Yeah. But then sometimes the combustion of diesels can, you know, you've got particulates and things like that, but they are easier, you know, they are more kinder for how far you can go, Mm. more energy efficient Mm. in that way. But, yeah, I think hybrids are where it's at. But, of course, you've got to shell out the money for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And we don't have an eco car, but I would love one down the track. Yeah. I would love the cost of these things to, 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 come, to down. come down. I know. We just need all the rich people who can afford them to just start demanding them more and yeah. the price will come down. Yeah. yeah, and maybe things like the Australian government that all their cars they buy are, hi- yeah, are the hybrid cars. Yeah, and yeah. Help them down, or you know, some of these businesses they're buying them to help bring them down as well. Yeah. Well, what do you say then, as someone like sustain a baby in your past, yeah. like the toy room? How could we mm-hmm. kind of? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, well, if you've got babies, just don't always. I don't. I'm sorry, I don't want to say don't. I hate putting don't because it puts a judgment on people. Try just remember you as a mother or a father, you're your baby's favorite toy, and that mm. is so true. Mm. So there's nothing wrong if you're cooking dinner to have them sitting up in a high chair next to you and just put a bit of food on their tray, and they can just play with the food while you're cooking dinner and you're interacting and having that that connection rather than just popping them on a play mat with all the toys and. You know what I mean? We're so quick to revert to toys to entertain and singing and just going outside and looking at the leaves blowing in the trees and having that connection. Um, the toy, the plastic toy invasion is very real in my life too. Mm. I've got a four and a six-year-old and just trying to keep that under control is a nightmare. Um, trying to gift experiences like let's go on outings, let's go to the zoo, let's go to this and that rather than always buying something and requesting that relative's do the same not that they always listen and do you know what's yeah. infiltrated our house pokemon cards oh really we don't have them oh laura these tiny <laughs> little cards like footy cards back in the day yeah and they're just i'm like and those shopkins have you seen shopkins oh yeah my son have, they've got one each I but my just... niece has like got she wants the whole collect, entire collection or something. It's like who comes up with all these ideas? And like the at the the start when Matthew's now about to turn seven and he still loves the Octonauts and when he was three he loved them. So for that birthday that year he got the Gupex, right, his third birthday. And we thought this is really cool. It's not like Thomas the Tank Engine where they're bringing out a frigging new train every month. It's like there's eight Octonauts. It's can't it's like they can't just turn around and call them the Deconauts or something and add another two. There's eight Octonauts. And there was the Gupex and the Octopod. We thought, this is cool. But now there's like the Gup A. I've got a video recording of Christopher last year for Christmas. What, Chris, what would you like for Christmas? I like the Gup A, the Gup B, the Gup C, the Gup D. Get out. And the Gup G. Oh, and I like the Gup H. And, you know, it's like far out. Like they keep bringing out all these things all the time. So kids have to, they feel they need to collect everything, don't they? So we're getting off track again. But, yeah, the toy room is... um, Gift experiences go for quality, not quantity. Um, and they're, this year we're putting our money, we're getting monkey bars for the kids in the backyard and then they'll get one extra thing from us or from Santa and then whatever relatives decide. We've asked relatives to try and pitch in for the monkey bars instead of presents, but we'll just see what happens there. But, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that's our aim to just try and like our house is three bedrooms. It's not getting any bigger. The toys are taking over. Can we try and stop this, please? Yeah. We need to breathe. I know. Like, and I love a good clean out. Love mm. it. Because it helps with how I'm feeling about life. Yeah. But the clean out, I've got two little hoarders. Like the kids take out the recycling bin every week and they get 50 cents pocket money. Um, yeah, we're stingy. And um, <laughs> yeah, but they take out the recycling bin and they don't put it all in the recycling bin because I find some of their drawings oh. and think, like, because it's a lot of the drawings and little squiggles they've done. Oh, yes. And they come back in. Mum, I drew this for you. Why is it in the recycling bin? Oh, darling. Because you oh, drew Dad another must have put it there. No. Dad, oh, go talk to <laughs> yeah, Ask Daddy. Daddy, why did you put this in the recycling bin? <laughs> okay, so just to finish up, um, I'd love to for people to know where they can find, if they want to get involved in um, sustainability in the suburbs, um, self-sufficiency in the suburbs, tell them how they can do that. Well, the... The best thing is probably to click the link below this video because self-sufficiency in the suburbs is quite a long domain name and it's, it's just open and the opportunity for people to type typos. So I just say selfsufficiencyinthesuburbs.com. You can click on it below. You can get started for $19. Um, but if you want to, I guess, get a feel about me and my work a little bit more before you, you know, look into that, by all means, head over to lauratrotter.com, my main blog. Or if you're a bit of a podcast junkie like me, 
listening to EcoChat in iTunes. I've just loved our chat today, Laura. Oh, it's been Thanks great. Hanging. And every time always. I talk to you, I learn something new about you. So it's just awesome because, you know, at the end of the day, I think that um, we're all just trying our best in life to make our way through. And for some of us who appear online and, um, you know, have have programs or products or have had success in whatever it is, you know, there can just be walls of uh, expectation up around people and understanding why people are doing the work that they're doing in this world I think helps break that down and you, you become more of a person. And at the end of the day, we just need to be around people. And I love that in your work, you don't, like just before, you're like, I don't like saying don't because, you know, I don't want ever people to feel judged or feel like there is a right or wrong way to do it. You know, you're out putting that out into the world and that's what people get when they come in and learn from you. And understanding why, you know, where you've come from, it just builds credibility because there's so many people with messages in this world. There's so many teachers and online we are just bombarded all the time. Mm. And I love finding the little gems like Laura who like Lisa. Well, I'm just the I'm just the the conduit. I like I see myself as someone who can just bring people like you and your work to a to a bigger audience. And um, I mean, you do that very well yourself. You broke the internet with your salt blog post. Yeah, kind that, of did that one. Yeah, that was a bit crazy. Just I don't, don't mind. I don't mind pushing boundaries sometimes. You got to. You, you're a strong yeah. woman who has. Um, educated opinions on things, and we need to hear them. So just tell people which salt they should use again. Uh, just Well, if you live in Australia, because it does vary depending where you live. So if you're an Australian listener, just check out some of our Australian mineral salts rather than just going for the Himalayan rock salt. So my favourites are the Murray River. This is not a paid endorsement, of course, the Murray River pink salt flakes, but there's some other great ones around too. So, yeah, just rather, I mean, Himalayan rock salt, it doesn't really make sense to be buying a salt that travels thousands of kilometres and it's it's a mined finite resource as opposed to our mineral ones. Uh, they're, um, they're coming from saline groundwaters that, that have been rising with salinity but, but the harvesting of this salt from the groundwater, it's not harvested from the Murray River, um, is actually helping to combat, combat salinity in the Murray-Darling Basin which is our still Australia's food bowl. So it's, it's combating oh, that environment too as well. I just love hearing you talk eco and a little bit, you know, eco nerd as well. Like, ah. it's sexy, Laura. Me too, Lisa. Don't, um, I hope Nick and Paul aren't listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, we still want them to be buying us flowers and stuff. Um, okay. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank I very much, so much appreciate I, it. I, Love your work too, Lisa. You're a gem in the online and offline world too. So oh. you are amazing. Oh, Laura. Work. I'll send you some flowers. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I very much appreciate your time. For more inspiration, interviews and know-how, head to smallstepsliving.com. Small Steps Living, inspiring your best life, one small step at a time.